0: listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something people Halloween is in a few days and I'm sort of in a predicament because when I lived in LA for all those years I lived in Burbank with apartments and I thought it would have been pay dirt. Well for 14 years I got nobody and there was no kids on the street. So now me and Joanne moved back to New Jersey and we live in a condominium development so I thought okay once again it's great for the kids they're gonna get lots of candy Last two years, nothing. So I don't really want to buy candy because I don't like be around the house because I eat it. But I have to because even if just one kid comes and my lights are off and I, I don't have candy, all of a sudden I'm going to be like the dick in a neighborhood. Anyway, we have a great show today. My gentleman uh, got his start with uh, Bare Naked Ladies. His... Uh, He's going about to go and restart his U.S. tour. I know he had a few dates. He's uh, with his trio. And I listened to his latest album this weekend called Discipline, Heal Thyself Part 2. I really dug it. It's got a lot of different sounds going, which is always great when you listen to music because it's got a lot of taste. And my guest is Stephen Page. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm great. How are you, Steve? I'm doing well. Now, now, are, are you a big uh, Halloween guy? Do you get a lot of trick-or-treaters up in your neck of the woods? No, I outside of Syracuse New York but we kind of live we live in this little
1: part off the suburbs where nobody goes so it's like uh, I grew up in Toronto uh, and for all my years even as an adult there it would just be a sea of kids and now it's literally nobody
0: it's, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I was used to, I grew up in the suburbs, so you would go, well, as a kid, I would go from house to house to house to house and you'd work yeah. your ass off. You'd work your ass off for the bag of candy. But now, when you live in a complex, you're like, these kids have it easy. They can make a ton of stuff without even work. That's right. I mean, yeah, for us, it was always going, going through different neighborhoods with a pillowcase, trying to fill the <laughs> pillowcase with candy. Now, I know you're coming to my neck of the woods next week in Philly and uh, you're yeah. with a trio and, You have a lot going on, but I saw on your Twitter, which people was at Stephen Page, you were recently, or you're about to be on as a celebrity chef on Iron Chef Canada, or celebrity judge? Celebrity.
1: Yeah, so I, I've I've actually done the Celebrity Chef on Chopped Canada before, which I won. I will say that's one of my proudest achievements. <laughs> Never mind the music stuff; that's one of my proudest achievements. And then, uh, and
0: yeah, then I got I got to do this uh, couple episodes of Iron Chef Canada. I want to talk about your album, but I got to talk about Chopped because I knew someone, a comic down in America, named Bobby Slayton, and he was a uh, he was a alternate for it. And he said it was he likes to cook, but he watched it. And he said it looks so stressful. What did you go through? Was it, is, is it as stressful as it looked? And are you thinking on the fly? Or is it like, do you maybe have a little bit of idea of the ingredients before you go on? No, you
1: have no idea. Whatsoever. And it is just as stressful as it looks on TV. I always figured it would be like, okay, that's hyped up. And of course, they're only showing you, let's, you know, they say, oh, you have 40 minutes for this entree or whatever. And they show you 10 minutes of it. So, of course, with editing, it's going to look even more stressful than it is. No, it's so stressful. And then they say, like, they, sh- they walk you through the kind of kitchen area before and show you where everything is but it, for me it just certainly didn't sink in so when they you know you open the basket of stuff and they say okay go for it and you look over at the at the pantry area and I kind of I just it all just felt like slow motion like oh what do I do now
0: and okay because I watch it at home and now were you a fan before and when you were at home would you sit there and figure out what you thought would go in the dishes oh totally I mean I, it's one of the best
1: play at home kinds of games you can have and I love it and I love the stress. I love watching people make mistakes. I mean, all that stuff, it's great.
0: Now, the new the album, uh I listened to it this weekend and it's it's got so many different sounds. Was that your object when you first started recording it to have a lot of different sounds in it? And and how did where did the sounds all come from? Well, I've always tried
1: to well, I don't know if I even tried is the right word. I've always made eclectic sounding records. I mean, if you go even back to the very first Brandeis Ladies record, Gordon, which came out in 92, um, you know, it goes from, uh, you know, kind of acoustic folk to to, uh, progressive rock to ska to Latin. I mean, it's all over the map. Um, And I think that's always appealed to me. I mean, for me, my big, Benchmark albums are things like Sgt. Pepper and and Abbey Road that are so all over the map stylistically that I always felt like there really aren't any boundaries. Um, And since becoming a solo artist about 10 years ago, um, it makes it even easier to kind of just go, well, what's going to serve the song here? What style, what era, what, uh, what ideas can I throw at it? And you try a lot of different stuff, and you stick with the one that serves the song the best. And a lot of these songs were actually written as part of a musical that I've written that will be on stage in Canada at the Stratford festival next year. And so because of that, there is an element of uh, serving the sounds of different characters and different plot points and so on as well.
0: Now it's funny you say that because I know a lot of people who are musicians after a long career, they sometimes channel into scoring plays or starting musicals like Kip Winger did it. He has scored his play. Um, how did you get into scoring plays? Was it something? Were you a theater kid when you were younger, or how did you get into that that idea of writing a musical? I was a bit of a theater kid. I mean, I, I didn't never
1: got the, the big roles, but I was in some musicals and stuff as a kid, and it, it really did kind of awaken my mind and my interest in singing, um, and the styles of musical theater. Kind of the masters of it have always kind of uh, have always challenged and excited me. Um, but what happened with me was in 2005, the Stratford Festival, which is a big um, classical theater festival. They do it's mostly Shakespeare stuff. They got a hold of me and asked if I would consider putting together, or if Bare Naked Ladies would consider doing the music for um, a uh, staging of As You Like It that they were doing. And As You Like It has a bunch of songs in the text, but of course, without the music to go with them, just the lyrics, and. They were going to do a staging of it that was uh, based around the Summer of Love, 1967. So they wanted music that reflected that. So I was very excited by this and ended up writing all the music for it. And then the band performed all the backing tracks and the uh, the actors on stage sang along with those backing tracks. Um, And that was a real success. And I really enjoyed the whole process. So since then... I developed a long relationship with the festival where I've now done, I'm now working on my seventh project for them. So I've scored everything from, you know, Hamlet to Macbeth to uh, Coriolanus and now doing my own thing.
0: Now, how do you, as a writer, how do you go about that? You said you're doing your own thing, but then you also have this album. How do you find what hat to wear? Is it what inspires you one day that you say, you get them and say, I'm going to write stuff for a solo album, and then I'm going to write stuff for, you know, this production, how do you as a writer balance it? Most of the time it,
1: it, it comes from what opportunities present themselves to you. Um, and as a solo artist, you have um, less reason to say no. I mean, in a band, your first obligation is to your band's vision and to your bandmates and um, to the schedule that works best for all of those Uh Things well on your own, you can kind of start to lay it out and go. Well, I've been offered this opportunity to work in a theater production. I've been able to work on a television show, um, so you kind of follow those things. And and uh, I've learned to say no to And because of that, I have had some some great learning
0: experiences. Now, I read, and you know, whenever you do research, you don't know if it's true or not. But I read your father was a drummer and your brother was a drummer. Now, did you want to first pers- follow them and be a drummer or how did you veer away from being a drums was it just because there's too many people on one drum over the course of the- I- my brother was a drummer so I can imagine three people playing drums throughout the day would probably get very you know hard on the ears. how did you end up not being a drummer
1: well first of all I was just a lousy drummer I had very little coordination <laughs> as a young kid I could barely put my two hands together to play at the same time on the piano so you know I'm trying to a drum beat just seemed like climbing Mount Everest for me, but also I think there was just the appeal of melody. I love to sing, and I liked, you know, I eventually grew into writing melodies, and that's really where my, where my heart was.
0: Now, how did you start pursuing your dream of being a musician? Um,
1: well, I started, I had been doing musical things, you know, singing in choirs and stuff when I was... Uh, a teenager, which of course you didn't tell your friends about, but I, you know, I did it and I loved it. I mean, the the feeling of singing with a hundred other voices, um, it's one of the most exciting transcendent things I can imagine. And, and, you know, I was never a sports kid. So for me, that was, I think the equivalent of a team sport where you're doing something in a group aiming for excellence and when you achieve it in those brief moments it's a remarkable thing so then you kind of chase it i think the rest of your life and i had been writing songs with a friend of mine like a lot of kids when they when they have uh you know their parents go away for the weekend they have a big party or something and instead of that, when my parents would go away for the weekend, we would uh, my friend Jeff and I would rent a four track cassette recorder and get a bucket of KFC and write <laughs> songs and you know and record them. And you know they were weird little songs, and we would laugh and just it was just you know the most fun we could imagine having was recording, making our own little lo-fi records. And uh, and then when I met up with Ed Robertson, who became my partner in Bernie Good Ladies we just had this innate ability to harmonize with each other. Our voices just fit together so well, but we didn't take it seriously. Like we, we enjoyed singing together, but neither of us thought it was our, we always kind of joked that it wasn't a real band. It was kind of a fake band. And, uh, it wasn't until we ended up getting offered a tour opening for a comedy group called Corky and the Juice Pigs across Canada, playing all kinds of colleges and, uh, And we both, both Ed and I took the year off of college to pursue being in a band for a year And we just never looked back after
0: that Now it was just you two, Uh, what were your shows like? Because, you know, being going into a crowd that's uh, ready for comedy I mean, comedians open for musicians a lot But you don't see a lot of musicians opening for a comedy, even though it's a comedy group How did you pattern your shows? Did you try to be funny, to warm the crowd up a little bit? Or did you just go straight into your quirky songs?
1: We always had that sense of humor and the quirkiness in our material, and you know, we kind of at, the point, at that point dressed kind of goofy and stuff, but we we knew we weren't a comedy group, and that was always confusing for audiences because if they were expecting a comedy group, we weren't quite funny enough for that. It was a little more, uh, um, like you say, quirky, and uh, you know, we really saw ourselves as a musical duo first and foremost, but what we had to do was learn how to structure our set and that's what we learned from all the comedy people we worked with was how to build a set so that there was a proper arc and you could grab the audience and keep them with you on the course of your of your your set and by the end of it you've won them over and that idea of trying to win over a potentially hostile audience and we saw lots of hostile audiences in those days too um but that was something that i we never lost i don't think i ever have lost like even even now when i'm touring who know my whole catalog, I still feel like I have to win them over. And I think that's healthy. I think that's what keeps you um, fresh on stage.
0: It well, keeps you hungry. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I did uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. I was a stand-up comic on the road. And you would always be, you know, if you had a bad set, it would devastate you for a week. But if you had two, five, six great sets in a row, it would never phase you. I think that worrying that you might do bad always gave you that, extra adrenaline and kept you right on your feet.
1: That's right. And, and sometimes, you know, there's a, there's nothing like bombing just a little bit to make you, I, I think part of me sometimes relishes it because there's an extra chore of digging yourself out of that hole when you dig yourself out successfully. There's nothing feels as good as that, but you're right, a great show, they can kind of come and go, but the crappy shows stay with you.
0: Now, so you guys are doing the college tour. When do you start taking it seriously you know you you took a year off from college when do you sit there and say you know we have something there people are liking us and when did you start I know you guys made a demo that got really hot after you were at shows when did you start putting it together as this is what we're gonna do it We
1: did a Christmas show like just for our friends and stuff, and we had decided to invite these two brothers we knew, Jim and Andy Cregan, to come and join us and be our band. And again, we were still kind of pretending we were a band. We were like, well, these are our our third and fourth members, ha, 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 and from our first rehearsal, like almost from the first note of the first rehearsal, we knew there was no going back to being a duo, that, that this was a really special sound, top of that these two guys could sing so we had four part harmonies which made us really unique at that point in the late 80s um and uh, you know we started playing more and more clubs around toronto and the audiences would grow you know we'd play a club on a thursday night or something and there'd be 30 people the next week there'd be 60 and the week after that there'd be 120 and there'd be a lineup out the door and we'd start to realize these aren't just our friends and family these are you know word of mouth is dark west in 1991 uh with this yellow tape it was just a five song cassette that we did in one night at a studio because you could get studio time for cheap if you went from like 11 p.m to 7 a.m which is what we did did five songs and used one reel of tape which was the most expensive part
0: Looking back, was it because you guys were different? What do you think drew the crowds to you? Was it your stage performance? I mean, cause you know, some people go, you know, you can go see a concert and you walk away like, eh, you know, but if you go and see something you really enjoy, you're going to tell your friends. What do you think made you different where people start, you started getting the buzz about you?
1: well i mean it's a combination there were, there were definitely the, the songs like you know songs, some of the songs that people will know like if i had a million dollars are that old are some of our earliest songs um but i think the 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 concerts um just people found themselves on stage like they, they would look on stage and see people they related to and at that point you know we're talking about kind of the think about the the joshua tree rattle and hum era of u2 with the, the uh the looking away from the camera and the black and white photos and the leather vest and that kind of sense. That's what rock and roll was at that point. And here we were, guys who were quite happy to tell you that we drove down to the club in our mom's car and we were (laughs) going to go return the drums and do the same thing the next night. And uh, an audience kind of, I think the lack of pretentiousness um, really appealed to people.
0: (laughs) Now, so you're, you're have the yellow tape. Now, when do the record companies start noticing you? Was it, was it quickly, or were you, was it a pain in the ass for you to get a deal?
1: We thought, being as naive as we were, and I think you kind of have to have this bizarre sense of uh, of ego, I think, in, in order to keep going. We thought, at, at this point, it was a shoe-in, and all the labels would want us. And, you know, I have a file folder full of rejection letters from all the all the labels. And, you know, we in Canada, a lot of the labels were basically branch offices of
0: So you get signed. Now, how do you start getting accepted in Canada? You already had the, the, you know, the crowds that you were going to, but did people, did you start getting airplay and people just started really digging your sound that made you branch more across the country?
1: opinions it was called speaker speaker's corner and they'd go in and give their opinions about various world events or that kind of thing and we went in and said, Hey, we're too cheap to make a music video. It cost one dollar to make a little sixty second video. So uh, here we go. Here's our video and we did a video for a video for the song be Mayo and it got went into rotation. They called us and said, This is what we've been waiting for somebody to do with this booth and uh, you know, five of us crammed into this little photo booth and it became hit on much music and then uh, the cbc the national broadcaster on their radio service would have us in for all kinds of shows that would go coast to coast so it gave us the opportunity then to travel all across canada and build our audiences now from there so you... by the time the record came out we had already in canada had built up a uh, uh, a sizable fan base who were ready for this album to come out
0: now, so the album comes out, and how does it sell in Canada?
1: It eventually sells a million copies in Canada, which is called the Diamond Certification. It's the equivalent of selling 10 million in the U.S. So it was you know, one of the biggest albums of all time in Canada. Meanwhile, in the U.S., it sells almost nothing. I mean, it's since gone gold, I think, but back then... We were, in the record company was sending us to anywhere that would have us. You know, we were playing in bowling alleys and people's backyards and whatever, just to get a little bit of airplay or a little bit of exposure.
0: Now, what? And so it
1: was funny, you know, we do these big tours in Canada and have tour buses and all that other kind of stuff. And then, you know, I remember doing one show in London, Ontario to 18,000 screaming kids getting in the van and driving across the border to Detroit and
0: playing to like 100 people the next day. <laughs> Man, now, now, why don't you think it was translating? Was it because you, you were, people already knew you in Canada, but why? I mean, if it, I always think if it something's doing good in one place, there's a good chance it's going to do something good in another place because it's just a good product. Why? Would, why don't you think it was a translating to the U.S. audiences, and was it frustrating as hell? It was
1: absolutely frustrating. What, what wasn't frustrating was the fact that organically, like we would build up our audiences ourselves in the U.S. the same way that we had in Canada. We'd play, play some city and people would find out about us, and by the time we came back, the audiences would grow. And so we would just make it make an effort to keep coming back over and over again and grow those audiences ourselves without the radio support. Um, and I think some of the reason why we didn't get that support, beyond the fact that we had kind of an image and a sound that might have been slightly out of step with the, you know, at that point, the grunge music and so on that was happening. Um, but I think people felt like in the radio business that success in Canada wasn't real success, that it was somehow propped up because Canada does have these these Canadian content uh, regulations, which in, in, insist that a certain percentage of stuff on Canadian radio is by Canadian artists, which is was developed so that... They didn't just mirror American radio, which is what they would do otherwise. It kind of forces them to support Canadian culture, but then it makes people internationally skeptical of any kind of Canadian success.
0: Now, you know, you said it was it got the it was a diamond album in Canada. So, when the second when you're when you follow that album up, is there a lot of pressure on you guys just because it was so big? And did the record companies expect the next one to be so big also? Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly left us alone to make the record we
1: wanted to make. Um, but when that record came out, um, I mean, it, it sold double platinum in Canada, which is still big, but compared to ten times, uh, it seems like a failure. And, you know, we'd go on the road, and what we realized, in Canada particularly, was that um, we had, you know, if, if you play one city when your record comes out, and then you play it again for whatever college homecoming week or something like that. And then you play a summer fair and then your next album comes out again. People think, Oh, I've already seen them three times. I'm not going to go back and see them again. We're in the U S there are so many more cities to play that it takes you a lot longer to, to, to burn out an audience. Um, but uh, what happened, what was, what happened that was great for us was because we had sold so much of our first record. Our second record was already recouped by the time it came out. So, I, you know, I think in, a, in any other situation, we probably would have been dropped after our second album, but um, we didn't owe the label any money, so we could just kind of keep going. And it wasn't until our third album, and we changed management at that point as well, that we had a, eventually had a hit in the United States with uh, with the Old Apartment.
0: Now, in Canada, were you getting recognized? Because you guys were a big band. Were you noticing that? You know, you sell all these uh, albums, people did people start recognize you, and what was that like, just because you guys started off just, you know, quirky and having fun?
1: Sure. I mean, yeah, we get, would we, we get recognized everywhere. I'd go, you'd go out and, hey, Brenna Good Ladies guy, or Brenna Good Ladies suck, or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> wherever you are.
0: Now, when the U.S., when you started getting the success in the U.S., how did you unfold to get more success in the U.S.? Well... One of the things that had
1: happened was in that, in that time where, where the old apartment had become a hit was they had developed relationships with, you know, with our record company, but with promoters and uh, like concert promoters and record record or uh, radio stations. and so. And it was one of these things where the song was a hit in one area that would drop off the chart and then it'd be a hit somewhere else. And then it would drop off the chart. And then it was like a whole year of that song being a hit in different regions across the U S. So by the time one week came out in, uh, 1998, every, everybody was ready. It was like, everything was all lined up, ready for this to happen. Not that we necessarily knew it was going to be, but there were lots of places where we were now playing arenas and without a ton of radio support or visibility, um, and then all of a sudden, one week comes out, and uh, I mean, it goes to number one, and the video gets played like crazy, and we've kind of crossed over into the mainstream. Uh, you know, after after you know six or seven years at this point of uh, of touring almost
0: nonstop. Now, what is it like to have a number one hit? Like, what is it to sit there and wake up and go, "Holy crap, we're not on top of Billboard," and to hear it all the time? Is it is it a feeling that? You're so excited, or after a while do you sit there and go, you know, we've really heard this song a lot now? Oh, no, it was really exciting. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where
1: I think we weren't even necessarily... we had been in the butt of so many jokes for so long that, um, that we weren't overly concerned about... Um, you know, what other people thought or whether we were sick of the song or not. I mean, we rearranged it over time after singing it for a long time and did like a bluegrass version of it. But the spirit of the song um, continued. and we were to- Hello? Hello, you can't hear me?
0: You just cut out for a second. You said we, we continued the spirit of the song.
1: We continued, you know, the, the spirit of the song in different arrangements of it, but we were never embarrassed by it or sick of it because I think we just felt like after all that time of uh, uh, touring, of just being on the road almost nonstop for seven years, we felt like this was uh, this was the payoff. It was, a, you know, a, a great success to celebrate.
0: Now, as as a musician, what is it like when you know that? When you kick into that one song, like you said, you know, even if you're having a little bit of a bad night, when you kick into that one song, the crowd is going to go crazy. Does that give you extra confidence as a musician? You know
1: what it gives me now, this far into my career, is I realize a song, you know, like, you know, a song that is kind of a, a unifier for the audience or it's a big hit or something. When you when you get into playing that and they all respond it takes a long time as a performer to realize they're not necessarily responding to you as a as a person or as a performer. What they're re- responding to is what that song means to them and what it represents in their own memories, and their own life. And they're kind of bringing all those kinds of memories back to the one, to this one place together. And they all kind of live together in that moment. And I just feel really fortunate to be able to share in that and, I think when I was able to finally kind of let go of my own sense of possessiveness
0: of that material
1: um, and share it with the audience it's an amazing feeling
0: Now with Bare Naked Ladies you did a lot of the writing what is that like when you do a lot of the writing do you feel that it's it's more your band or is it something that you just know your friends because they're band members so well you know exactly what to write for them um, I think in a way felt like it was
1: mine and ed's band as a, as a as the two of us were the ones who started it it was kind of our vision but everybody had a voice um you know we wouldn't do stuff if if you know it was certainly always majority rule and if it, or if somebody was particularly passionate against or for something we would also follow that i mean it was i think it was pretty respectful that way um but like when it comes them to, to things like like doing a demo of a song you know as i got more and more. Uh, to rec- the you know, concept of recording and the practice of recording, um, I'd start to make demos that were a lot more elaborate, you know, and playing bass and writing out drum patterns, or whatever else. And, you know, I realized that that was because part of what made us the band with our own sound was the contribution that everybody made with their own parts to the songs. So I stopped doing that and kind of tried to make them a little bit more uh, stripped down so people could still find room to express themselves in the songs I wrote.
0: Now, down the road, when you were in the band, you guys started your own record label. How did that happen? I mean, what what made you decide to do it that way?
1: Well, we were at the end of our, our agreement with Warner Brothers, and I think we started to figure out that their, their bet, they were hedging their bet a little bit on the idea of, okay, they're never going to have another hit as big as their biggest hit, which is, I think statistically probably absolutely true. So we could be beholden to, to this label for another three or four records or whatever, and not get the same, um, uh, not get all the, the weight of their marketing dollars and their, their, you know promotional push and so on and at the end of the day the label would still own the recording Um, this way if we started our own label we had our
0: So you're sitting there, you're releasing your own music, and I guess you, you can decide really what you want to release. Were you getting a little antsy and wanting to go a different direction by this time? Because I know you left in 2009, but at what point did you sit there and start feeling that you might want to branch a different way? Well,
1: I put out my first solo record in 2005, so about four years before I left the group, and I'd actually recorded that a couple of years before that. And it was one of those things, like, how do you release this and not feel like you're competing? So, you know, I kind of shuffle it to the back and put it under, put it under the name The Vanity Project, kind of hide behind the name. And, you know, I realized I was kind of compromising what I wanted to do in order to keep the band's interests at heart, which was, I think, you know, the right thing to do if I was going to be committed to that group. Um, but as time went on, uh, we kind of, you know, everybody had different goals as to how they wanted to tour, what kind of record they wanted to make, when they wanted to put records out, and uh, and so on. And just it stopped being, um, I stopped feeling like we were all on the same page by that point.
0: So you were, you leave in 2009. Now you guys have been together for, what, about 20 years. What, right. is, what is it like when you are now going on a solo career? Because you are associated by one uh, with the band which is a plus but if you want to go in a different direction that can be a minus because people are going to expect Bare Naked Lady sound for you. How did you attack that whole change? The whole thing was kind of starting
1: starting again and I was absolutely I mean I had the like you said it's the plus and the minus of having the band the band association it's like you know a lot of people don't necessarily know what every individual's contribution to each band is so to get back out there reintroduce yourself and go okay this is the voice of two lead singers that you might recognize this is what my writing style is but also here let me try something different um you know and there are some people who probably wouldn't listen to you because they didn't like the band and other people who would listen to you but don't know you're not in the band like there's all those (laughs) kinds of ways of trying to reach people um and that can drive you nuts if you think too hard about it um you know, I realize now how lucky I am to have that association of, of the band, and I'm certainly proud of everything we did together. But then getting out there and playing without the, the comfort and security of the four guys that I've played with since I was 18 um, was scary. And I've, you know, over time, again, found collaborators who I'm really comfortable with and, you know, and am able to play stretched boundaries in ways that I couldn't before. You know, now, that, now there's no preconceived notions as to what, you know, what my role is, um, whether it's with the trio or with a group like the Art of Time ensemble I've recorded with or the theatrical stuff or even just when I'm playing by myself, I can always kind of push myself and challenge myself that way.
0: Now, when you when you first left the band, Did you automatically switch into a different mode for writing? Because now, as you said, you're writing for yourself. I'm sure part of your writing and yourself was in Bare Naked Ladies, but another part is you growing differently. How did it affect your writing when you first left the band? Well, I mean, I really,
1: I think I continued writing as myself and wasn't going to try to change persona or anything else, but I was able to, you know, collaborate with whomever I wanted. So, for instance, Craig Northey from the, the band The Odds, who I still, he's part of my trio on the road as well, he he and I started writing a lot together. You know, that's the kind of thing you can't necessarily do in a band because writing with an outside person, which I did to some degree with a, with, um, a guy named Stephen Duffy. He and I did a bunch of writing while I was in Naked Ladies and, you um, you know, it didn't sit that great with the other band members. And uh, here I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. You know, I could work with, uh, you know, one drummer on one song and another drummer on another song and nobody's feelings get hurt. Um, and it's not, it's not uh, betraying the idea of what the concept is. It's about, you know, serving whatever I think is going to work best for the music and learn to collaborate with other people and, uh, and, and meet new, new people. It takes time. But you know making that first record with John fields page one that came out in 2010 that was a huge step forward for me to be able to remember or realize that I know how to make records and I've been doing it for for 20 years at that point and that it was kind of in my blood
0: now how did you hook up with Stephen Duffy how did you know I know I've read something where you were a fan of his and how did that happen how did you get together <sighs> yeah when I was fifteen i
1: I bought his first album, The Ups and Downs, and loved it. i mean it it was kind of the soundtrack to that summer of my first heartbreak and everything else and and when that, uh, I wrote him a fan letter, you know, as you would do in nineteen eighty five there was no internet to do to send anybody a tweet or a direct message or anything else. and I sent him a fan letter, and he wrote back. Now he's I think still to this day can't exactly explain why, but I think he felt a connection with me that I had felt with his music. And uh, when I was 19, I went over to England for the summer to study at Cambridge University, and I had some time before that and had written him to tell him, and he offered for me to come and stay with him and his band while they were rehearsing.
0: Now, when your first solo album came out, what was going through your mind? Because you said before, you know, you were, it was nervous, it was nerve-wracking when you left the band, because you're on your own, what What were you expecting from that first album, and were you happy with the end product?
1: Yeah, I was really excited about the album, and, and really proud of it, and uh, you know, I still am. In order to survive, sometimes you need to delude yourself. And uh, just like when we were nineteen, thinking that every ba- you know every label in the world would want to sign us, I think I probably had some of that same delusion, thinking this album will come out and everybody will say, "Oh, we love this album," and it becomes some kind of big hit. Um, <laughs> I have a much more realistic exp- expectations now because I've released a couple since then. But at that point, it was you know it was disappointing that people didn't really pick up on it.
0: Now, this latest album is a Part 2. Was that planned when you wrote Part 1? I want to hear the story about Part 1 and Part 2.
1: Yeah, Part 1 and Part 2 were originally one... Initially, it was going to be one kind of large double album, mostly songs that were uh, part of my writing process for this musical I was telling you about called Here's What It Takes. Um, And by the time I thought releasing whatever 30 songs all at once was a lot to ask of an audience to kind of, uh, to get, ask them to digest that much material all at once. And, uh, and then I thought selfishly too, it's like an album as I've now realized in this day and age, unless it's a huge hit, an album lasts a week or two in people's consciousness before they, before it, it disappears. Um, you know, into the long tail of the, of the streaming services. Um, so I thought, well, maybe if I break this into two parts, um, it'll have more of a life. But of course, by the time it, it, you know, I released part one and toured that, and uh, and then it was time to get ready to re- to get part two finished, because I hadn't finished all those songs. Some of them dropped off. So I wasn't as fond of them, or I didn't feel they fit anymore. And I'd written a whole bunch of new songs. So it really did become a, quite a different album that I think, for me... Shows the progress that, that I made with myself, at least over the over the years, the couple years in between.
0: Now, where did the title "Heal Heal Thyself" come from? So then you just continued that when you came out with this latest one, the part two. That's right. Now, now the songs, as I say, you know, it's funny. I I always take little notes. I know uh, Wrestling Through the Dark sort of reminded me of like in the beginning, like a loungiest Cat Stevens. Do you ever have any influences when you listen to it? Because do you sit there when you sit down to write? Where does it come from? Because, I mean, you know, white noise sounds sort of punkish and like the knack. And then you have another one that sort of sounds like that Felice Navidad kind of sound. How do you write? How do you, when you sit down, how do you know what you're going to write? Because the, and I love the fact that all the sounds, all the songs are different. It's not the same thing in a row, in a row, in a row. Right. Um You kind
1: of just starts to come out I think it, I think. I don't know where's this going I never know where it's going until I'm kind of halfway there and then I start to struggle with it and I start to kind of that's when you start to get granular and try and figure out the the right approach but sometimes it's just a matter of um, uh, of just letting the music take you to where we want to go like when the Charlottesville Unite the Right uh, demonstration happened a couple years ago and I'm not the kind of person who necessarily you know, runs to write a topical protest song, but I saw that and, and was so horrified, I ran downstairs and started writing the song, and White Noise came out. And I guess you know, I, I was thinking of bands that I grew up listening to, like, um, like The Jam and The Clash and Billy Bragg and those kinds of things that were always uh, political and pointed, and I think the music reflects that. But then you go to another song like Whistling Through the Dark, and it's like, well, it's kind of a sardonic
0: Sinatra is how I look at it. Now, it's funny because I did write down the jam on white on white noise. I did because that's what the, the opening sounded like. Now, sure. do you, if you write everything? How do you write a part for horns? Or do you let someone come in, you know, like what I got? There's horns in there. Do you have a musician, you find a musician who comes in and just adds it or do you actually write a part out for a horn uh depends on the song for that one for what i
1: got from you i wrote that part um but there's other songs like uh like feel good summer that I, might, I would write a sketch of what i wanted to hear in a section and then i'll and then i'll have a have the horn player this guy brighton baird who i've used on the last three records playing trumpet uh I know him really well and, and I trust him, but I'll say, you know, take a few tracks of, uh, of you know, your own ideas here. And same thing like with the cello with Kevin Fox, who plays with me in my trio, I'll have him, you know, I'll give him a sketch of what I want to do. And sometimes I will write out stuff that I specifically want,
0: but then I'll, I'll certainly encourage them to add stuff. Now, what was it like working with new musicians as your solo career went on? Because as you said, you've been with the band for so Long and that was part of your identity, did you have a hard time trusting new musicians because they didn't know which direction you're going to go into, which the band probably knew exactly when you played together, you had that autonomy?
1: Not really. I mean, actually, I, one of the most exciting things about doing this is learning to let go and trust and to trust people to uh, bring their own Musicality to whatever I'm doing, so I often say to, to new musicians I'm working with, you know, I might have a specific part I want them to play, but I often say like, let's not do this like a cover band. I want I want to hear you play this, and uh, if it's an old song and if it's a new song, I want them to bring to it what they would bring. I think uh, you know that's that's the most exciting part.
0: Now you keep you said the trio. What made you decide to go on the road as a trio, and will that take away from some of your New songs that have different instruments. What 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 instruments do you have the trio? You probably have a drummer and I think a celloist, and you?
1: Uh it's uh myself on acoustic guitar and piano, Craig Northy on electric guitar, and Kevin Fox on cello, so that's all it is. And then we occasionally have uh somebody who plays percussion with us too. Um and you know, it started off I was doing a lot of duo dates. Like I do I do full rock band dates as well. Um but You know, I find quite often, you know, it works in a big setting, it works in a festival setting, um, and it's also super expensive having a lot of people in a band on the road. Um, With this trio, I I was taking two different duos that I was doing, and I put them together to make this. A couple years ago, um, I was booked to play a two-week residency at the Cafe Carlisle in the Carlisle Hotel in New York City, and it's, you know, a super fancy Upper East Side, kind of black tie. Cabaret, old style cabaret, and I decided to bring this trio as as the way to showcase that because there really isn't room there.
0: Now, when you play in a trio, because you said you guys were having fun, is there a lot of improvisation? I can't forget it. Do you guys improv? Do you improv a lot on just the musical parts?
1: Oh yeah, totally. I mean, we have we have arrangements we, that we try to that we strive to stick to when we're doing these songs. But if someone wants to go off somewhere, we'll certainly encourage it. And there's lots of improv elsewhere in the show too, where you know I'll make up songs and the guys go with me, or we. You know, we do long riffs on on other ideas, and, and that's
0: that's a lot of fun. Now, what is it like adjusting to a smaller crowd? Because now in Philly, you're playing in a, at the City Winery, which is new, and you're playing yeah. different dates from when you play with the you know bigger crowds in Canada when you were Bare Naked Ladies. What do you find more comforting? Because a lot of people like a smaller crowd better because it's more intimate, and you can see people, and you can actually feel like you're connecting better. Is that the feeling you get? <laughs> Yes, although I mean, I certainly wouldn't say no
1: to, to to playing larger venues. It's not like I go, oh, I'm playing these little ones because I like it better. But you know, I, it's it's what what the economy allows for, and it's what you know, kind of what I can sell right now. However, I've learned I'm not nostalgic about the old days of playing in the clubs, but I've learned to find a new way of playing that keeps these feeling very intimate and. For, uh, for us on stage and I think that's that's the next thing that comes out of it is audiences feel like they've experienced something special
0: now do you have a prepared set list for every show or do you just have a few points that you're gonna play and then just you run from that you run you know you just go from that that We follow, but that
1: we'll we'll call Audibles now and again, or, or quite often actually. And, and uh, kind of in the middle of the set, there's a section that you can usually go way off the rails if we, if if, uh, if it dictates.
0: And now, will you be playing Bare Naked Ladies music and a new album, and some old favorites of yours, or how how do you can how do you create your set list? Yeah, we we do stuff all the way from you know the earliest Bare Naked Ladies
1: album all the way up to the most recent stuff. You know i used to think i had to make excuses for that and i'm so lucky that my audience you know would actually come and say you, you can sing that you know like i'd say well i know you're really here for the new stuff because you see bands sometimes you go see bands that you've liked for years and you go well of course you're gonna play some new stuff but i hope they play the old favorites well i do play the old favorites but i think audiences tend to look at the new stuff as a as their way of catching up and and checking in and that's uh that means
0: a lot to me. Now, when you play the new stuff, the people are enjoying it. Is it fresher because you're playing it? You haven't played it as much on stage or is it pretty much, you just put the energy and kick ass during your whole show? Well, I mean, it does take us a long time to kind
1: of get our, you know, our arrangements for this new material, especially stuff if we're, if we're reducing it to a a trio format. So some songs will take a lot of, you know, rehearsals and soundcheck before they make it into the set list. And then of course you're concentrating extra hard. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I really like the fact that, that the new stuff seems to hang quite well with the old stuff in the set list.
0: Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for coming on, Steve. It was great. And I know you start the, uh, you're, you're in Niagara Falls, November 1st, and then you have a bunch of cities on the East Coast. And uh, and yeah, I saw you're on Twitter, you're at Stephen Page, and you seem to tweet a lot. Are you, are, you a, are you a busy tweeter? Yeah, although I admit
1: most of the time it's like just keeping people informed as to what's going on with like... Shows and recordings And that kind of stuff I used to be a little more Social with the social media But
0: um, Too many trolls out there (laughs) Yeah it's crazy Now November 5th You'll be in Philly That's also your mom's uh, Birthday You're gonna play Play a little happy birthday for her You're gonna do something I mean What are are you gonna do Uh, I'll
1: find some way to sing something for her she won't be there but i'll be i'll be thinking of her and sing something for her for sure
0: Let's go. i want to thank you for coming on people go to stephenpage.com follow them at twitter at stephenpage go to my website coopertalk.net email me cooper at coopertalk.net uh twitter is at coopertalk so remember i'm steve cooper i'm only as hip as my guest don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and i'll talk to you guys next time